Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me, makes me stronger. Ginny Saraswati, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. Michael Silverman, what a pleasure to be on this podcast. Big fan and excited to be in the passenger seat now and on the other side of the recording. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, this is particularly exciting for me because you are the producer of my show, you and your company, Ginny Media. Would love to just take a minute for you to share what is Ginny Media? How did it come about? Because it's just, it's an incredible resource. I know for me and and many other people, whether they're, they're business people, celebrities, or just folks who want to start a show. Right. Thanks for the question, Mike. I love the fact that we're diving straight into uh, Ginny Media. (laughs) G-Media is obviously a highly narcissistic name, which I formed three years ago. So we are primarily a podcast production company. Think of us as your outsource podcast production team. We do everything from concept to launch to ongoing podcast production. We live, breathe and sleep podcasts. It's been an insane journey to be able to offer this resource for podcasters. The way we like to see it is we like to let our podcasters just focus on what they're good at and what they love, which is creating the content asking the questions, showing up on the interview, where we take care of everything else, where you just send us the files and we just take care of everything else. So we are also pretty hands-on. We have certain, you know, clients that we work with who are a little bit more hands-on. We're actually literally their in-house producer where we'll sit with them for questions, we'll sit with them during the interview and we'll sit with them for the post-production process. But we just like to think of ourselves as your podcast production team and we have people that you actually speak to. There's no bots in our company, maybe the chat bot on the website, but that's it. So you, we do really pride ourselves on exceptional customer service. That's what we strive for. We strive for the exceptional. If we miss it, you'll get above average, which is uh, what we're aiming for as well. So that's what Ginny Media is. And it started as a consequence, Michael, of me being in radio, uh, purely accidental. After I finished my morning show in Australia, I decided to start my own podcast called The Ginny Show. And off the back of that, I had people coming up to me asking me, hey, how do you do a podcast? Can you show me how? And that's pretty much how I fell into Ginny Media. I felt there was a need for a podcast production service because I thought when I was starting, it would have been great to have someone write my show notes, do some artwork for me and distribute. And I could just rock up, do my show and then send it off to the masses to get done. So it started off as a personal need and it became a resource need for many people. And I thought, hmm, maybe there's a business here. So that's how it it happened. And so what kind of drove you into podcasting? Because I know you were a very successful radio host in Australia. You hosted a super popular morning show, award-winning show. How did you decide, well, I kind of want to go do my own thing with podcasting. And and I know that ultimately led to Ginny Media, but what guided you in that direction? There were a few things that were guiding me consciously and unconsciously. Not to get too woo on you here, Michael, but I think for me, I knew for me there was New York somewhere in the distance when I was in Melbourne. Since I visited here from 2011, I knew I wanted to live here. So I knew somewhere in my future there was New York. 
And unbeknownst to me, four years later, after I had that thought, I fell in love with a New Yorker. So I fell in love with the city, fell in love with a New Yorker, and New York was in my midst. So I knew that would mean there would be some separation from what I was currently doing to move to New York. Because obviously I can't run the radio show from New York if it's a Melbourne-based show, right? So what happened as a result of that was when I started thinking, okay, where do I see myself in New York? And podcasting started to pop up quite a bit in Australia. And all these kind of on-demand content shows that you see coming out of the States, the volume of what was coming out of the States was not nowhere near what was coming out in Australia. Like there was hardly any kind of dent in the podcasting market then. So I thought to myself, okay, what can I do to still be creative, still kind of get things going? And organically for me, it felt like the natural transformation from radio to podcast. It was just a natural transformation because I'm like, all right, on a morning show, obviously there's certain deliverables that you need to meet. You need to do weather, you need to do traffic, you need to do news. There's certain topics you need to cover. Yes, you can still be yourself, but the time allowed to explore that is very minimal. On a podcast, you pretty much have a blank canvas. I mean, you can literally Google stuff on allergies and you can have podcast episodes based on allergies. Like, It's endless now. So I thought to myself, this is a great platform for me to kind of establish my own brand authority and it's a natural progression in audio. So I think when I started thinking of the idea, I'm going to do a podcast and I was also working my last day job then at the moment. So my podcast was technically my side hustle. My day job was fueling funds to get that made and edited and that sort of thing. Photos made for it, PR done for it. So I knew there was something in there. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that was exactly where I was supposed to be. And unbeknownst to me, you know, three years later, here I am producing over 70 podcasts, yours included, Michael, and I'm in New York City. So there's a big leap of faith there. Very cool. Well, there's a lot of change in there. You know, with these types of leaps of faith, you know, it's quite common that you have some bumps and some bruises along the way. As you took the leap of faith into podcasting and certainly running Ginny Media, I know that maybe concurrently or right before you were also running a different type of business, an events-based, LBGT events-based business in Melbourne, if I'm not mistaken. What was that experience like and how did that inform some of the principles that you take into Ginny Media? Yeah, I love this question, Michael, because I don't get to talk about that company, Bling, as it was called when I was running it. I don't get to talk about that company as much as I'd like to, because people say to me, oh, you know, you've had some great luck and success with Ginny Media. I'm I'm very blessed and grateful for that. However, like I, and some people say to me, oh, you know, you're such a businesswoman. I'm like, I wasn't always a businesswoman. I don't even consider myself a businesswoman. I kind of make things up as I go and I stumble through it. And, you know, thankfully, I hope and pray that things work out. I do not have it all figured out. But Bling was a great example of that, Michael, because Bling was technically the first business that I started. It was an events company, like you said, that I formed in 2011. It was 2012, I think it was. And it was events for LGBT community in Melbourne. It was also specialized events where we'd bring like certain people, celebrities, campaigns over to Australia, and we'd create an event or a space for them. Bling at the time, I mean, if you look at Business Success or Business 101, it was not a successful company. On paper, we weren't making profit, right? I was working too much, trying to cut corners, saving budgets, stressed out. The people I think who I attracted at the time, some of the people who I attracted at the time, weren't in alignment with what I wanted to create. I also, as a leader, did not know what I wanted to create. I created Bling or the events company because I knew there was a space in Melbourne at the moment or at the time where events were really popular. So I'm like, all right, well, if they're popular, let me create something to make 
some side hustle money, but there was no passion. There was no vision. There was no intention. There was no alignment with anything that I was doing. And when you're doing that, and I, I wish, I mean, I'm so grateful for the experience, but had I had the experience and the knowledge that I do now, it's very, very clear why I was setting myself up for a disaster because I was completely misaligned. I remember I tried to hire people who would work at a certain rate, but not really think about their value. Now I'm more like, let me think about your value and we can negotiate. I was coming from a place of lack and coming from a place of scarcity. I'm like, how can I make the most money, but spend very little? When you're in misalignment like that, when you're trying to only focus on the result, which is profit, you miss the whole learning experience or the whole purpose of creating a company or what it means to be an entrepreneur, which is to provide a unique service or product in a situation where there is a need for it and to be able to bring value to people's lives in whatever way that may be. So I was not thinking the way that I do now back then. And this is why Bling did not work out. There was no shining thing in Bling back then, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it seems like, you know, as you mentioned, events were popular, right? And you targeted a community that probably wanted to partake in events that you understood the community. So like on the face of it, you know, people, there's a demand, right? And you're offering a product that people seemingly want. So from that standpoint, you would think on the face of it, there is a certain amount of alignment, right? So I'd love to understand more when you say there was an alignment, what does that mean to you? There wasn't an alignment between my intention of creating the company to the greater vision, to everything else. When you hear people say everything starts at the top, it really does. If you are the leader of your company and you're misaligned with the intent that you're bringing into the world with your product or service, if you misalign with your vision, if you misalign with the value, if you're saying outwardly, hey, I want to create a safe space for everybody, but inwardly you're not creating a safe space for yourself or your team members, ultimately that's going to catch up with you. There's only so much that you could hide that away for a period of time. I mean, PR can be good, but there's only so much human behavior will dictate. There's only so much human behavior can compress before it explodes, right? So that's why I was misaligned. I was in it. My intent was to make money. It wasn't to put on a great show. It wasn't to put on the LGBT community the best possible experience ever. I mean, that was a part of it. That's what I wanted. But I didn't lead with the service, right? I led with the money. Had I led with, I want to give you a great thing. I want to make sure that this experience is breathtaking for you and you take away something magical for it. Had I led with that, I think Bling would be a very different company at this stage. But it's a lesson that I had to learn rather than going to business school. I just built a company that didn't work. So this is why I'm grateful for Bling and all the lessons that it taught me. It also taught me that, you know, very much as a leader of a company, everything does start with you and also ends with you in certain ways as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. It, it resonates with me because, you know, some of my more painful failures are where the focus has been on return and how quickly can you get a return as opposed to, you know, are you contributing to something that can be a, a lasting enterprise and has good fundamentals and is creating something that people want and you're instilling that that joy and incitement in, in your consumer or your customer or whatever the case may be. And so it is interesting how that focus on maybe fast returns or fast profits can often lead you astray. And whereas, you know, if you focus on those foundational things of delighting your customers, making sure your team is all aligned 
and creating something that can last for a long time, then the other stuff will follow. 100%, 100%. And I think that's why I like when you're creating something, whether it be a film, a business, anything, it's got to start from some place of purity or service. And I say that, I know it sounds very woo-woo when I say that, but really it is, I mean, as business people, you know, you think about, okay, how does this service plus cost equal profit? Like there are formulas, obviously, as a business, you need to make money to survive, to employ people, to make sure that, you know, we've got that product and throw it. But to your point, Michael, yeah, it is really important that we start to get aligned and that starts from leadership. Everything, it's, it's why I say to, the, and I think Gary Vaynerchuk says this a lot, and I say this at Ginny Media, everything that happens at Ginny Media is my fault to some percentage because I approve the hire of that person. I approve that process. I said that was okay that we do that. There is everything kind of falls on me or I trained a leader a certain way to make that call. There is some accountability on my end in some way, shape or form. That's the radical ownership, radical responsibility, right? And so we're there, you know, it sounds relatively straightforward to say these things now, right? To be sitting in your position saying, you know, of course, this is the way we do things. But I find that quite often you can be engaged in these patterns, whether they're personal or professional, that really aren't serving you for quite some period of time before there's a a stimulus that's painful enough for you to to stop and reflect and say, oh, that that didn't really work. Did you have an experience or a series of experiences that that were that for you as bling wasn't working out or as you were learning these lessons that you applied later on? Yeah. So I remember the first bling event that we had, we had, we hired like two sets of performers. So it was obviously, it was a night that we had on a Friday night. We had a door charge. We had two acts. So we had a dance group, which was like a hip hop group. And we had another dance group, which was a live performance of, of singing and dancing And the hip hop group had been training for, I think, or they've been dancing or practicing or rehearsing, should I say, this is how out of touch I am with events (laughs) that long. They were rehearsing for this particular event for months. And on that night, the lead dancer got absolutely wasted. We had to kind of feed her sushi, sober her up, but just you watch the video footage and she was dancing a different dance to all the other four of them. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God, this just makes me look really bad. And anyway, there was some behind-the-scenes backstage stuff that happened as well. And I remember thinking, what have I done? And I remember feeling that night, you know, when you release something into the world and there's such joy in the fact that you've created something, I did not feel that joy. I did not feel a sense of achievement and I did not feel a sense of, wow, we've actually created something magical here. That excitement was missing. And people, when I tell them this story now, they're like, I can't imagine you not being excited or joyful about something that you create. I'm like, this is how misaligned I was, right? This is how not self-aware I was. And I remember that moment, I'm like, oh no, why did I do that? So already Bling started with this energy of this is not working well. Like it was a lot of hard work trying to recover from that. I had to counsel the four other dancers. I had to talk to the venue owner. There was a lot of hard work. And when things consistently feel hard, whether you admit it or not, you know when there's some resistance going on there, you're really fighting the flow of something. At that time, the universe was telling me you need to go in another direction. But I'm like, no, I'm going to make this work. The overachiever in me is like, I'm going to throw another event and another event and another three events, all to the point where like the universe is like, really? You want to do events? 
I was really fighting the flow because I really, the overachiever in me wanted to prove everything wrong. So I was just constantly fighting and grinding and not allowing myself to show up exactly as I was and not allowing me to build what I was actually supposed to build. I was like, fighting it. So many things popped up along the way. I'm like, no, people. And then eventually what happened was, Michael, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here. There's one thing about having a good crowd, right? And there's another thing about having or a good turnout to your events as to how you can make profit. The other thing was, as soon as you're fighting these things, as soon as you're fighting, like you're trying to cut corners in cutting budget. So you go for a quick fix or an easier option, or you have to negotiate with certain people to an unreasonable point. When these things that feel difficult continue to pop up, they will show up in your results. So ultimately I had events where hardly anybody came. So I lost a lot of money, obviously, but this is also the the most valuable lesson that I learned is that when things are out of flow, you know, there's something up there. That's interesting. I think it can be hard sometimes to tap into that because I think as you know, the entrepreneurial spirit is okay, this is really hard, but you have to press through. Right. And I think that there's, a time and a place where you just have to put your nose to the grindstone, recognize that things are hard, but see the pathway ahead. But I think that there's an interesting nuance there to what you're talking about. Certainly, this has been my experience too, where the universe is trying to tell you something and you're just not, you're not in a place to listen to it or the, or the marketplace, right? The universe marketplace, either way, it's trying to tell you something. And instead you're being very hard headed and saying, no, I'm going to force this as opposed to saying, oh, you know what, there's an opportunity right now to adapt and change my principles or change my business model or what have you, but really pivot, right? Either emotionally or spiritually or organizationally, what have you. Was there that point for you or was it that you just kind of hit a point where you said, I don't want to do this anymore? It was a bit of both. So I told you about the first event, how the dancers were misaligned and there were people who actually, the other part of that event was there were people who rocked up who were indirect competitors. And this is also where like, this is a sign of misalignment. I'm probably reading too much into it, but when I look at all the signs that were coming up, I'm like, Ginny, seriously, if that showed up as it was in my life now, I would have been done that first night. I'm like, see you later. Like I haven't got time for this because I value my time, freedom and resources and people too much to deal with that. But at the time, there was these competitors that they were competing events or competing establishments that came to Bling as a way of, I guess, I don't even know what it was, but they arrived in a way that it was like, oh, yeah, we're all good. We're all in the same kind of community. But it wasn't. Like, I, I knew what was being said behind my back. And that kind of environment, I'm like, that's actually not who I am. I don't like to engage in in gossip or talk about other people. It's not how I roll personally. So when that started to happen, I'm like, I'm just going to ignore that. But obviously these things keep happening. So when I threw the second, third, fourth or fifth event and not many people, I mean, one of the most popular blings that we had was the second event where we got to fly down a singer from the US. And I remember that event, it was great, but there were the energy behind it again was like, I've just spent all this money bringing someone down. I need to make this money. I wasn't thinking about Again, the experience that wasn't at the forefront was more so how can I make the bottom line? Whereas now I'd be the complete opposite. I'm like, all right, we're going to create this great experience for someone bringing this person down and and create this fabulous event. So then the intent about the profit and the money just kept coming up and coming up. So every event that I had, the third, fourth, fifth one, there were less and less people coming and 
there were more issues coming up internally. Like there were team members who were like, well, why are they getting more social media posts than me? And I'm like, seriously, like, like why are their pictures on more than me? It was just like managing, it was managing things that I didn't think I would need to manage. And, and I know this sounds very petty. And, and, you know, when I bring this up, it's like, oh, well, what's that got to do with business? But what I'm really focusing on here is the energy that I put into building this business, wanting to get results, wanting to get profit, that I want to get something in it for me. Of course, everybody else internally in my team is going to be like, what can I get it for me? Because it's coming from the top, right? If I'm coming from a point of selfishness, not service, obviously that's going to trickle down to everybody that I hire to some percentage. And there were like conversations that I need to have with people. There was just so much drama that I had to deal with, with team members that, you know, and I had no boundaries at the time. So I was like, okay, bring on the drama. I was being permissive to it. It just got to a point, Michael, where I'm like, all right, well, this event's not profitable. I've just had enough. Like, I don't want to deal with this drama and I don't want to keep having a dry bank account as a result. (laughs) And so you just shut it down at that point. I shut it down at that point because I thought, and also like, you know, there's only so much to a point where your pride needs to kind of move itself out of the equation. I was like, no, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to show them. And then when you have like 10, 20 people rock up to your event, that's free. That is free. Like there's no entry when you have less than 20 people rock up to your event. That's free. I mean, that's the universe going, are you going to listen to me now? Like when nobody takes a product for free, that is the universe telling you in business 101, <laughs> move on. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I would imagine that's a fairly painful moment. Oh yeah. It was a very painful moment. Like I remember going, driving home and thinking to myself, what have I done? Like, there was a lot of money that I lost, but also a part of me knew that I had called this in. My intent was to take, so something would be taken from me. Hmm. And so you mentioned your team at the time, very into, you know, what was in it for them. And I'm struck by, as I interact with your team today at Shinny Media, everybody's super service oriented. All the interactions I've had have been incredibly positive from you, you know, all the way down the list. How did you develop the principles that lead you to be able to kind of attract those folks to you, but also I would imagine create that culture in your organization today that seems like the polar opposite from what you're describing in your... your I think that's a great question, Michael, and a very loaded one. I think the short answer I will give you is run a company that fails and then you'll learn how to do what not to do. But <laughs> for me, I knew there was an entrepreneurial spirit in me. I valued freedom in a way and flexibility in a way that I knew in my nine to fives that I needed to can this at some time. I knew intrinsically that needed to go. So after the events company, I paused and I went back to what I really loved, which was radio and interviews and connection and that sort of thing. And when I went that, I um, started doing some personal development work. I um, started studying with a spiritual teacher and many spiritual teachers going on retreats, just really tuning into what I want. And, you know, when you say these kind of, when you talk about this journey, people are like, okay, so you didn't eat, pray, love. I'm like, no, I really didn't. I didn't go to Bali, India or Italy or anything like that. I kind of didn't eat, pray, love in Australia, in Melbourne. But it was to a point of, I really needed to get clear on who I was, what I wanted, what I was taking on, because the whole thing about your vibe attracts your tribe or you attract what you put out. 
there was obviously something unconscious in me that was attracting things that I clearly did not want. If I wanted abundance, but I'm going about things to get profit or take or get something out of people, obviously that's what I'm going to attract. So I just really need to get clear on, you know, what was really going on with me? Where was that coming from? So that really helped me think about, you know, my scarcities, what I was worried about. And through all of that, the one thing that I did know, Michael, in spite of everything that had gone on with bling or what I was doing in my day job. Radio was the one thing that I had since I was 20 years old that I worked for free. Like I I got up at 4.30 a.m. for free. Polar opposite to what I was telling you about bling. I was offering a product for free that nobody would take, but this was a product for free that I'm like, yep, I'll do it. Like I did that for 10 years. I volunteered my time. That's where I built my skill set. That's where I built my contact list. That's where I built a portfolio of audio. I knew that I loved having these conversations, being on radio, meeting new people. That's one thing that I did continue. So I leaned right into that. And I knew that somewhere radio or audio or these sorts of conversations would come into place, which is what I was saying about with podcasting. And in that time too, I started listening to podcasts on business. Gary Vaynerchuk was one of them, Tim Ferriss, um, Tony Robbins, Oprah. And they all had an underlying theme in common, some louder than others, but there was one and some form of acknowledgement of source. Oprah talks about source daily. Tony Robbins talks about it in his way. Gary Vee also does in his way, not as loud as the other two, but he talks about like he doesn't overthink when he misses a plane or misses a car. He knows that's for a reason. There is some faith there that he's playing at or some sense of non-attachment. But all three of them had this sense of service and a really genuine intent to give more. Gary Vee does it in his way with his content. Oprah does it in her way, obviously, and Tony Robbins does it in his way. But they all had a way of doing things. So I thought this is particularly interesting. So I started listening to their podcast, getting into what they wanted to do. And the one thing that I also learned from in terms of leadership was the current organizations that I had been working for what not to do. I've had leaders who have been great and have had their strengths in their own way, but I've also had leaders who've been very poor at managing change. They've been very poor at connecting with their team. So I knew, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to have a meeting every time we sneeze at Ginny Media. Like I'm not going to do that. And we don't. And the last week of every month at Ginny Media, we have what's called culmination week where we don't have any internal meetings. We only take meetings that are absolutely necessary, but we keep them under five because we want to allow that time and space to also culminate in the sense of let's figure out what's working for us and what isn't. And that's just also chill. Like we don't need to, we are in the business of communication, but we don't need to over communicate everything. So I learned these things from the, the leaders that I have. There are leaders who are highly empathetic. And I realized that my performance as an employee as to how I could show up to work was far better when I had leaders who I felt comfortable with, who I knew I could approach who I knew would understand if I told them I'm having a bad day or I'm going through this or I'm sorry, because I know that I would end up doing a good job anyway for them. I would end up doing a good job. I'd be over-delivering what I was supposed to be doing anyway. And I, I realize that leaders who can elicit that kind of response out of you naturally, who can allow you the space to be yourself, that's the leaders that are going to create an amazing productive workforce and a safe workplace environment and culture. So it was a bit of both. Like I was doing some learning on the side and I was also watching certain leaders. I'm like, that's a really bad move there, dude. And you see it play out. And if you want to know how good a leader is, 
Go and experience the culture of a workplace and you'll know straight away. Spend some time with the employees, you'll know straight away. How engaged are they? How do they talk to each other? What do they talk about? Employees are spending a lot of their time bitching about their work rather than focusing on their work. You know there's something wrong. That's really interesting. And I think the time that you took for yourself there seems really key because that's something I noticed Ray Dalio talks about it, pain plus reflection equals progress or you know something along those lines. And I, I think you see that so often where you have the painful experience or the strong stimulus that, that makes you reconsider what you're doing and the importance of taking that time reflecting, right? And you, you know, it sounds like in your situation, you wind up listening to a lot of people. I would imagine the things that you're hearing, you're applying retroactively to the experiences that you've had, the maybe the missteps that you've taken. What did you wind up codifying these thoughts in any kind of way? Or did they just kind of naturally occur to you as you thought about your next venture, your next, your next business? They did end up codifying about two years into it, but I'm very much of a a let's do and figure it out later type of person. And that's the culture that I've brought into Ginny Media and bless my team for embracing that about me. I do acknowledge there is a need for processes and procedures and standard operating stuff. I'm just not that gal. This is why I hire people to do that (laughs) for me. But I think for me, what was deeply resonating to the point, like I listened to the Gary Vee audio experience while I was in my day job, you know, chopping away at, or not chopping away, working away at the um, aerospace worker job that I had. And I remember him saying like, culture is the one thing that will build speed in an organization. And I'm like, I had no idea what he was talking about. But then you look at, he was saying essentially, if employees can feel safe at work, be themselves, actually focus on their work rather than bitching about how bad the workplace is, That's how you're going to create a thriving culture. That's how you're going to keep your retention high and your turnover low. That's how you're going to keep this machine growing in a way that is going to be scalable and successful all around. And it really does start with your people. And I think when he said that, I'm like, that's interesting. Like that felt right in my body. And as I mentioned before, when I had experienced that from leadership, obviously for me as a person, the result was greater for the company and the value exchange was far greater. I kind of stopped and looked around certain environments of my own and and my friends. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting because the amount of times that we were in conversation and the amount of times that we would actually bitch and moan about work. And I caught myself saying, oh my God, like I'm in a culture that's toxic. And my friend was like, I'm in a culture that's toxic. It's true. And I think it's from there that I learned. And I I have a friend of mine who actually is the head of people and culture. Their culture is fantastic. And she was talking about this. It just sounded bizarre. It's like, wait, you put your employees in training programs so they can be better leaders? You actually pay for it? Yeah. I'm like, that is insane. Like you invest financially in your employees. What is this sorcery? And I think from there, I started to be like, okay, there's a pattern here. And even though I didn't quite quantify it in my head, I knew there was a pattern here. And I knew if I came into clients, I had every every one of the, the clients we have at Ginny Media, we come with, what can we do for you? And how can we provide you with value? That is where I start off with that customer service centric place. And I think over time, as I've scaled this business, I've been like, I need to make sure that that doesn't get lost. Because I think as companies scale and grow really quickly, that can get lost depending on the kind of hires that you have and the people that you bring on. 
I, for me, when I, I've actually for the first time in my company have stepped out of hiring. I now have a chief of staff who does that for me on my behalf and department manager hires. But I've always said to them, please make sure they're a culture fit and everything else we can work on. If their attitude and their intent is in the right place, their talent can be worked on over time. We can figure that out. But yeah, it's, I think that's where it starts with. I think if you are looking at a company, you've got to figure out how to scale you times 20, times 40, however much you grow. It really does start there. It makes me sound like this is a very selfish podcast, Michael. So I'm like, it's all about the leader. But it, when you're running a company, it does, everything does start with the leader. But that's it. It's an interesting shift in selfishness, right? Because in the previous venture, your selfishness led you to say, how can I take, how can I get like what's in it from me? And now it's still that, you know, maybe a sense of selfishness. I think ultimately to be an entrepreneur, there's, there's a certain solipsistic nature about you, right? But the, it shifts to how can, it's still all about me, but how can I serve everybody? How can I serve the customer? How can I make sure that I'm getting the culture right? How can I teach everybody, right? So it's still, it's still coming from that, like, how can I, and realizing that it starts with you, but it's more about giving and less about taking. Is that a fair interpretation? It's more of a place of awareness. Yeah. And it's not the only driver in what I do. Whereas I think 10 years ago, that was the only driver in yeah. what I would And that, you know, you can only build an empire by yourself. <laughs> you can't build an empire by yourself, but but to your point, Michael, yeah, there is an element of, I think entrepreneurs, I think we're all crazy to want to do something impossible, to want to jump off a cliff and figure out how to build a plane as you're landing. Yeah, We're crazy. Like, let, let's just be frank here. We're crazy. So there is going to be that element of whether you call it selfishness or kind of like a, a sense of, oh, this person is a big dreamer and, and, you know, they're dreaming big things. There is an element of that. But in what you do, the impact that you make and how you serve and how you bring value to your customer is what I think is that defining point of success and the team that you bring to help you build that success. Yeah. When it comes to the team, I think I saw an interview with you that, and maybe this isn't still the case, but that most, if not all of your employees are independent contractors. Is that still the case? How do you, a little bit more of of sort of a specific question there, but how do you implement your culture when you have, uh, my understanding is a fairly kind of distributed workforce, pretty virtual workforce, and then mostly, if not all, independent contractors as well? The first thing I do, Michael, is if I think about what Ginny Media actually do, our vision, why we do what we do. I mean, people say, oh, you guys do podcasts. That's what I tell people because it's relatable and palatable. What we actually do at Ginny Media is we enhance we encourage and we solidify connection. That's what we do. So that is where I started with my team. How do I feel more connected with my team when we're not physically able to share the same office space? And how do I ensure that they feel connected to each other? Because if we're not walking our talk, what are we doing? Like if I'm producing your podcast, Michael, and I know nothing about connection, you know that this relationship is not going to be a fruitful one. You may get value out of our services, but are you going to walk away going, you know what, Ginny Media, I wouldn't recommend anybody else. I wouldn't take your wallet elsewhere. I wouldn't take, I wouldn't recommend anybody to go elsewhere. It's, that was super, super important for me. And yes, all my team are independent contractors. There are some team members who work full-time hours, but still as independent contractors. However, I think 
the feeling at Ginny Media that we have is we ensure that we have weekly team meetings where we all meet, we all see each other. We do obviously check-ins, gratitude practice together. It's just a way that we can get to know each other better. I can walk away from that meeting going, I learned something about Ash or I learned something about Laura or I learned something about Sarah that I didn't know the week before. And I think that's really important, one, as a leader for you to know that. And secondly, as a team, for you guys to feel more bonded, you're not going to feel more bonded if you're working in your own little silos trying to achieve the same thing, right? It's like lifting a load by yourself, knowing that someone may have the other end have you ever tried, you've moved before, Michael, I'm sure. Have you ever tried yeah. to carry a couch down the stairs? It's like literally carrying a couch down the stairs and not knowing if the other person is there holding it, <laughs> you know? How can you trust that that couch is going to get safely to where it's ever supposed to go? So it's the same thing here that we encourage connection within the team and the culture. And, you know, when I brought on a chief of staff, her job is to ensure that all new hires, they're okay, or all current hires are okay. And it's to the point now where I think that we have a sense of culture and community because in the independent contractor community, things can get quite lonely because you are working by yourself. But this sense of community and connection that we're building is really helping improve productivity and speed because we can talk to people, we can get a gauge of what their energy is, we can see them even though we've never met them. Like there's a sense of what their energy is. You get to learn more about them. But that's where productivity is so great there too. And the other thing I'll say too is when we bring on contractors, they actually have to have contractor discussions with me because they're like, I feel like you have full-time employees and I feel like you want me to be a full-time employee. I don't want to be a full-time employee. I'm like, relax. I'm not asking you to give up (laughs) your hours for me. But the culture we have here is very team oriented and people do show a commitment. I mean, I see that as such a positive because they're like, everybody seems so committed even though they're working 10 hours for you. I'm like, that's great. If they feel they're a part of something. And I think, you know, as humans, we want to feel community. We want to feel like we belong, whether we're an independent contractor or, you know, working in a, in a 50 person company, we want that. So if I can emanate that as much as possible virtually and give people the tools to do that, I think that's my responsibility as a leader to do that. And ultimately that does, you know, help us walk our talk too. Distributed workforces are obviously sort of a front of mind these days with uh, so many folks working from home anyway. When you founded Ginny Media three years ago, was that sort of an obvious thing to you? Like everyone should just work from wherever they are? Or was that something that you came to through trial and error? A um, bit of both. <laughs> I'll be honest, because people are like, oh, that's such a genius. I'm like, listen, I didn't come up with it. It was literally an accident. I knew in the back of my mind that I'm the kind of person when I want things done, I want to make sure that we set a realistic deadline, A, for the customer or even for myself, we're going to get this done, right? The quickest way to dissolve trust in a relationship is to promise something and continually not deliver it. You're going to burn that trust very quickly. So I thought to myself, how can I keep Ginny Media competitive and how can I keep us still competitive and service oriented? Now, obviously, when you're hiring a distributed workforce, you're going to get people who speak all sorts of languages. English may not be their first language. Their communication style may not be verbal, might be visual. It might be, you know, we talk about this a lot. Like there's three ways of consuming communication. You could read it, write it and watch it. Right. So if I'm constantly sending emails out to people who feel better getting a video from me, are we having the most effective exchange of communication? So when I started doing that, I'm like, I just wrote emails because that's what I did. B, 
but I learned to adapt to certain people's differences because that's really like we're all one human family, right? We all have different ways of doing things and consuming things. So hiring this workforce for me, I was like, the one thing I want to do is keep Ginny Media competitive, but I'm not sure how to do that. But what I did know is if I want something done and completed by Tuesday and today's Monday, it means I have 24 hours to do this. How can I achieve that? So that would mean that the process would have to start at a certain time zone and end at a certain time zone, right? So if if I need to get audio editing done, then show notes written and artwork done in like a 24-hour cycle, what does that look like? That means these three people need to be living in three different locations where they're physically able to work. So that's how it started really, Michael. And that's kind of where like when we go to hire people, we're like, all right, let's get someone in Australia or let's get someone in London, or let's get someone in Romania, or or the Philippines, or wherever it may be, like depending on the cost and the budget and also the the need. I think having a distributed workforce is also competitive in the sense that you get the speed of things happening is quicker because you're using time to your advantage, right? Even though like jet lag can be a pain, like when you're running a business, distributing the workforce and getting stuff done quickly is super, super quick. So um. That was a reason, again, totally accidental, but I was thinking in the lines of how can I get this done really quickly, but with decent quality and still focus on customer service. Very cool. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and just ask you a little bit more along the personal line. You switch, you know, born in Sri Lanka, grew up in Australia, you come to New York, it's a big jump, right? What was that process like for you? And was it scary? Was it the same way as as jumping into a new business? Was there something that really spoke to you about, you you know, you mentioned being drawn to New York. What was the thing that drew you to New York? And was there something that told you on the other side of that coin, I need to leave Australia, I need to leave Melbourne? What drew me to New York? I mean, the first time I came here, I just fell in love with the city. Like the energy, the characters, It was far greater and shinier and louder than Melbourne was. And I'm like, what is this place? This place is crazy. And just the flow here and how creative and people were very expressed, sometimes too expressed, (laughs) which I didn't get back in Australia. And I'm like, oh, wow. But I also knew that New York is the media capital of the world. It's the capital of a lot of things in the world, but it definitely is the media capital in the world. And the opportunities here and how things were expanding media-wise here. We weren't there yet in Australia. And that's in no disrespect to Australia. We also don't have a 300 million plus population. We've got like literally a tenth of that in Australia. So we're not going to obviously have that volume here due to the population and obviously the resources here as well. So that's what drew me, the energy of this city and the opportunities that I felt that would enhance, complement, bring value to what I was doing in Australia. And also, you know, every year I kept coming back and I left and I felt like I was leaving home. I cried every time I was at JFK because I'm like, I don't want to leave. Like, this just feels like- You don't like want to leave New York or you don't want to leave Australia? I didn't want to leave New York. Okay. I, and I kept saying to people, this is my second home. Like, I just know it's my second. I just, I was just so sad. It felt like I was leaving. Like, I mean, New York is the love of my life. It felt like I was leaving like a lover behind. And every time I got back to Australia, I'm like, <sighs> I'm back in Melbourne and I love Melbourne. <laughs> I do. It's, where I, it's where I grew up. It's always going to, it's always in my heart. It is a home for me, but the energy of this city is just, is magical and it's contagious and it's intoxicating. And it's also like you're in that relationship with someone where you're like, oh God, today I really don't like you because you snowed on my car and I shovel this out and all these sorts of things, but it's New York, you know, and 
you know, for me, I'm very blessed. Like when I just like things were just aligning for me to be like, okay, this is, I can actually run a business over there. And what I loved about New York was the freedom I could experience when I was traveling. Right. I was able to go to a coffee shop and pump out a podcast. I'm like, this is a life I want to live. I want to be able to have that freedom. And to know that I was able to run a business freely, work as a freelancer, then turn into an entrepreneur and then run a company, that also was a part of the package for me. And, you know, I obviously was in a relationship at the time when I moved over with a New Yorker as well. And that was kind of like, okay, well, that seals the deal. I have to move now. So the paperwork process was fun because, you know, when you move over on the particular visa I am, you have to prove every single interview that you've done. So I had to come up with this like 600 page folio of work, but you know, I don't regret it at all. And it's sometimes to your point, Michael, that you were talking about before the leap of faith that you make um, for me, before I jumped, I'm like, what is the absolute worst that could happen in this scenario? If the absolute worst is me going back to Australia and having to drink Melbourne coffee, which is pretty damn good, <laughs> I can deal with that. If that is the worst case scenario for me, if I have to go back to a nine to five in Melbourne, that is fine to me. I've done all of that before. I know how Melbourne coffee tastes. I know how a nine to five works. I'm good with that. Yeah, that's cool. I love stories like that because I think, you know, what's so core to America, right, is the is the immigrant mentality my mother is an immigrant as well. And I think that that the immigrant mentality and the entrepreneurial mentality is quite often, you know, there's a lot of alignment there, I think. Has that, it sounds like, you know, the draw was obvious. Has living in the United States as someone who's not from here, have there been challenges with that? Because one of the things that I noticed in, in a lot of the interviews that you give is you get the where are you from question quite a bit potentially in in loaded ways sometimes. Has that been a challenge and how has that affected your experience? It's not so much been a challenge, Michael. It's been more so amusing and interesting to observe because I think people look at me and they think I'm supposed to sound a certain way. And when I talk, they're like, whoa, I did not expect that. In previous interviews I've done, I've talked about how people speak to me in Spanish a lot. And I've had to learn, I mean, and I've had to put the Google Translator app on sometimes when people ask me for directions and I want to help them, I just put it in Google Translator and they're like, ah, gracias, and they leave. But um, I just find it, I think when I show up a certain way and then I talk, they're like, where are you from? I'm like, Australia. It's like, are you originally from there? I'm like, no, I'm from Sri Lanka. Where's that? That's what shocked me the most, that Americans don't know where Sri Lanka is. Mike. Really? What is up with that? <laughs> <laughs> what is up with that? Like, so that's, that's the first thing that kind of threw me. Like, you don't know where Sri Lanka is? It's like an island south of India. Where's India? All right, we're done. Yeah, we're, we're done. done. <laughs> <laughs> I've got nothing. Um, but I think to that point as well, it's just been amusing because a few people have said to me, especially recently, I was in Staples the other day and I was buying, I think, posted notes. And the guy, the cashier was like, that's $14.99. I'm like, oh, thanks, mate. And he's like, where are you from? I'm like, Australia. He's like, and you live here? I'm like, yeah. He's like, what are you doing here? Why did you leave? <laughs> I'm like, okay, I've been getting that a lot lately. But other than that, I just find it very interesting that I think when people sound a certain way and look a certain way, but I don't know, for me, like how is someone who looks like me supposed to sound? Yeah. You know, like, how do I answer that? <laughs> Fascinating. And Speaking of your Sri Lankan background, in a lot of the stuff you do, you do a lot of funny bits kind of with your aunties or impersonating your family members. And there's, I think, an undercurrent of this kind of like push against traditionalism or that's kind of the traditions there inherent 
culturally there. What has that been like for you and how has that shaped your outlook in terms of how you build businesses, how you have, you know, how you build empathy, how you think about culture? I think that's been probably one of the main factors that has helped me be a better leader. I mean, you have to ask my team whether they agree with that, but I think that's one of the things that's really helped me because I like leaving a secure job that was well-paying after we migrated from an Eastern country to a Western country to move to another Western country and leave a job that was stable and secure and possibly the highest paying day job I've ever had. They're going to think my family think I'm crazy. (laughs) And I understand why they're like, this girl's crazy. She's moving to this country that nobody knows what's going to go on over there. And she's leaving like a well-paid job. And I can also relate to that and empathize because I also know that my family come from the mentality of let's move to a place, save, buy a house, we've won. I want more than that. Yeah. I'm not saying that's that's not enough. That is enough. Like that, if that is what makes you happy, namaste, go for it. That's what you want. And some people are like, yeah, that's what I want. Go do it. However, for me, I wanted more. I wanted freedom. That's what I valued. Some people value that security in that house. That's for me, I do value some of those things, but not more than freedom and not more than creation and connection and all those sorts of things. So it, it's very much helped me empathize with what holds people back from really leaping, right? I think there was an image I saw today of the cliff in the middle, and I think you've seen it leap the other side and the crevice in the middle. Sure. It, some people don't want to leap. I think people don't want to leap because they're afraid to fall and they're afraid of what other people will think of them. I, for me, being the only gay person in my family, I know what they think of me. They think I'm crazy already. So whatever else they want to think of me, I'll let them think of me, but I'm not going to make it that my focal point. I think the quickest way to unhappiness is worrying about what other people think of you or think of you. That's the quickest way to fast track your unhappiness if you build your life predicated on that. Yeah. But to what you said about, you know, the undercurrent of going against traditionalism. I think for me, like I had all the odds stacked against me. I didn't do a science-based higher education. I did arts. I'm the only gay person in my inner and outer family. I'm the only person that has moved to run a business from their Western country and left the day job. I'm the only girl who hasn't purchased a property yet. Like all these things, I'm 35 and nearly 35 and I'm married. Like there's all these things stacked up against me, Michael. But I'm also okay with, whatever they say about that, because that does not define my happiness. However, I am empathetic as to why they say that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think that's an incredible perspective to have too, to have the empathy for where they're coming from, but also the security to say like, oh, that's, that's just not me. Yeah, that's just not me. And I'm and okay with that too. <laughs> was humor always sort of a, a way that you dealt with that or did that develop with radio? I think it was a bit of both. Humor was a way that I would develop kind of a deflection and also like, why are you making such a big deal of a situation that you cannot ultimately control? Mm-hmm. I think that's very much how I do deal with things with humor. Like I try to see the lighting things. It's never too soon to joke. Sometimes I joke too soon, <laughs> but humor definitely is because I think, you know, joy is something that I value so much and humor is a way to access joy, obviously. But yeah, humor especially, I think, has this amazing way to, I guess, dematerialize the meaning humans inject into something, right? Because I think the truth is the truth is the truth. 
and we start injecting our own personal meanings and projecting things on there. But humor is a great way to dematerialize all that, like pull the veil. And then you can look at a situation and be like, is this really as bad as we're making it out to be? That's why I use (laughs) also to deflect having a real conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's interesting. I think, you know, laughter in particular is one of those sort of human reactions that puts you very much in the present moment, right? It takes you out of your head. It's this incredible freeing experience, even if it's just fleeting, right? So it's, uh, I think it's often a great, uh, great separation from whatever set of experiences that you're dealing with at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Michael. I think humor, gratitude, great way to anchor into the present. Yeah, that's so cool. And so, you know, it seems like so much of your success in life, and, and I say that, you know, personally, professionally, spiritually has been a lot of this, a lot of trial and error, right? Uh, And a lot of reflection on the error. The creation of podcasts and these kind of creative outlets, it seems like, you know, each one can very much take a similar track. What have you seen that separates the successful podcasters from the unsuccessful ones other than just sticking to it? Because I know that's something that uh, I think you'll probably mention. And it's interesting how powerful it is to just stay at something. But other than that, you know, can you share a little bit of the trial and error that goes into creating successful podcasts? Sure. That's a question that I get a lot. Like, how can I make this podcast the best podcast possible? Most downloads, sponsorship et cetera, et cetera. These are questions we get daily. Yeah. Um, the one thing I think I'll start with the, what differentiates the successful podcaster to the not so successful podcaster. The one thing that differentiates in my experience and what I've seen with my clientele and outside of my clientele between the successful podcaster and the unsuccessful one is their ability to listen and to listen without projecting their own meaning their own thoughts, their own fears, and their own circumstances onto that conversation. That is what makes a powerful podcaster, the ability to listen. Like if you listen to some of Oprah's interviews, if I were to put my podcast producer hat on and analyze this, if I was to like hover over, she plays a role of the listener. She plays a role of the student. She also plays a role of the driver of the conversation, right? But in that conversation at some point, she switches to the passenger seat and lets the guest drive, right? She's like probably saying some things like, oh yeah, maybe we should take a left here. They're like, yeah, sure. I'll go there. But the thing about Oprah is she deeply, deeply listens. And she listens in a way that she reiterates certain things because she's trying to understand it. And she listens in a way that she knows the listener is probably thinking the same thing too. That kind of listening I think it takes a level of mastery. When I say this, this sounds so simple. Like, yeah, I can listen. But can you listen without projecting your own meaning onto the conversation? Can you listen without trying to take the conversation elsewhere or making it about you? Not many people can do that and do it at such a level of a masterful skill. So that's what I think makes a successful podcast. Was that deep enough for you, Michael? Sure. Yeah. No, I I love that answer because I think, I mean, we all know the person that you can have a conversation with and is just waiting for their turn to speak, right? You kind of see it. They're just sitting there waiting for you to stop talking. (laughs) But I think what you're getting at is something a little deeper than that, which is, and I've had this conversation before where this notion of active listening. So creating the space for the person that you're in a conversation with 
to share the kind of things that you're hoping they're share or to create that environment where you're going to maximize that conversation, get the most out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you think it's just because you're having those types of conversations, is that going to lead to the kind of content that creates a great podcast? So for instance, let's say Oprah has all of her skills today, but none of her celebrity and she launches a podcast. Is that content in and of itself going to become successful or is there something else to the successful podcast? There is additional ingredients if we're going to make the perfect recipe. So if Oprah was, we didn't know who Oprah was, if she wasn't a household name and she were to start the podcast in the level of talent that she does has right now, I think ultimately her trajectory would end, she would end up in a, a position probably Maybe not to the celebrity she is now because it's hard for celebrities to be the Oprah of today because of the internet, right? We're not going to see another Michael Jackson. We're not going to see another like mega, mega star because we don't have that level of celebrity now, like with influencers, like that kind of level of fame doesn't, it's not quantifiable at the moment. The The unrivaled king of pop isn't going to be a thing. Exactly. So I think ultimately she would get there. However, The other part of this is with content being created at the scale that it is now in all its platforms, in podcasting, in video, in blog, I think the other ingredient is to really know how to communicate in whatever space that you're in, right? So if you're in video, like me sitting on a microphone or hiding behind something, that's not going to be engaging for video, right? So I think the other element is knowing your audience, and how to be really comfortable in that space that you're in. Because you can have a greatest conversation, but if you're marketing a soulful conversation to people who want to know about business, they're going to be like, yeah. So it's, it's actually, if I can sum it up, it's who you're talking to. Who you're talking to in the podcast, actual podcast, the listening involved, and who you're talking to, who you're sending the podcast to. So they're, they're the two elements that really make a successful podcast. Got it. So how do you listen then to the audiences, right? It's, I mean, it's one thing to, to listen in the conversation. Yeah. You know, when we, when I invest in a consumer products company, right? It's, you got to understand who's buying the product, right? But more importantly, why are they buying it, right? What are the driving purchase criteria behind yeah. this? And try and get at least some data behind that so you can make those decisions. And one of the things that I always cringe at is, when an entrepreneur says, well, you know, I'm basically making this product for me, right? Or I know who my consumer is because I created this product. But so often when you dig deeper, you realize, well, the driving purchasing decisions from vast majority of the consumers really isn't what you think it is. It's, it's actually something else. And you've got to, at some point, you've got to isolate that and leverage that and use that as a guiding principle to think about the evolution of a brand or the evolution of a product. So how do you take those same principles to something that's content-based, especially like a podcast? I like to think of it as similar to what you were saying. There's certain data points in every kind of, let's put something out there and see what the response is, right? Some people measure the data points by sales. Some people measure it by, okay, who is the key decision maker making this choice to purchase this said product or service? But for me, if I put a piece of content out and say I put like a podcast out on Facebook or I put it on Instagram and I just want to watch how people interact about that particular piece of content, right? What do they share with me? What comes up for them, right? If they're like, oh, Ginny, because everybody will hear things differently. And that's one thing I've noticed about communication. We all hear things, read things, watch things very differently. What we take into our brain is going to be very different. So 
I like to watch how people react to my content. Okay. If they message me about something personal that came up for them, if they message me about, I love the mindfulness hacks. I love the happiness hacks. I love that this episode brought up so much for me about my weight loss journey. Even though I may have only talked about weight loss for five seconds, they, for some reason, made that entire 35 minutes about weight loss. Do you get what I'm saying? Watch how your audience react to your podcast or to your piece of content. And from there, you can draw data points about who they are, what they care about, and what they're looking for. So the examples I gave you, happiness hacks, mindfulness hacks, and weight loss, all can really fall under self-improvement. That's what they want in the various flavors that I presented. But how they take that and what flavor of ice cream they turn it into is entirely up to them. I have no control over that. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) There's a lot of that in your own podcast in the Ginny Show. One of the things that is recurring that you talk about is your inner 11. Can you share what's your inner 11? How did you get to that? And how does it serve you? If, if people are like, is this like some form of mob or underground gang? <laughs> Technically, my inner 11 are what I call my personal team. So yes, I have a team at Ginny Media who are a part of my business and they're my team in my business. But my inner 11 are my personal team. They're who I turn to when I need that support that I am unable to or unwilling to give myself. So I call them my inner 11 because they're my internal team and I separate them into four quadrants, earth, fire, water, and air. They're the elements, right? So each person falls under a certain category. So if I need to feel grounded on certain days, there'll be friends under earth that I'll turn to or I'll call. If I need to be in flow, I'll call my water sign, my water element friends. They're not all water signs. If I need to get that fire, there's the fire friends and, you know, the breezy, chill, I'll call an air, right? They're my inner 11. They fit in there. They're people who create a safe space for me to share what I want to share without judgment, without projection. And they have my best intentions at heart. That's who I turn to. If I feel that they don't or no longer, and, you know, as people grow apart, sometimes they do, that inner 11 will become an inner 10 or inner 9, or hopefully not, but it will decrease. But at the moment, I am thankful that there's 11 people on that list. <laughs> That's really cool. I've never heard anything like that. <laughs> but it's a fascinating mechanism for connection. But I would imagine also also keeping you honest, right? Because part of the safe space is you're comfortable that they've got your best interests at heart, but they'll also push back. That is a requirement. And back at them too. Like, I'm not going to, if they ask me something, I will tell them honestly what I think. I'm not going to be like, yeah, do that. Go jump into that fire. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Well, that's so cool. Ginny, you spent a bunch of time with us today. So I really appreciate it. Working with you and your team has just been so exciting. As we're kind of winding down here, what would you share for the entrepreneur out there who's trying to create something new? Maybe it's a podcast, maybe it's a new business, but they're going through a rough time with it. What's your advice to folks that are in that position? I think the time and energy and anxiety you put into thinking about doing something is far greater than the effort that it is to actually do something. So just start. Just start. I'm just going to keep it. I know I've been very ready, but that is my thing. Honestly, I think people, we put a lot of energy anxiety, tension. And I know this sounds very simple and it is not because it does take a lot of courage to leap. But 
if you want to put it down to basic math, think about the time you spend thinking about starting something, the anxiety, the worry, the fear, the, all the things to actually starting and doing, there's going to be a different paradigm. You will get to the answer quicker by doing is what I'm saying. So it's a proclivity for action ultimately. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, that's great. Ginny, thank you so much for this. This has been super fun. Really enjoyed this conversation. If people want to get in touch, learn more about Ginny Media, thinking about starting a podcast, what's the best way to reach out? You can reach me at The Ginny Show, or that's my personal Instagram, or you can hit us up, my company at GinnyMedia.com. You can contact us. We have a phone number. We have a team there. We have a chat bot. That's the only robot we have at our company. But please do say hello. We'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks, Ginny. Have a great day. Thank you, Michael. It's amazing. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com, and you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path, and I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.